This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Outliers, The Story of Success by Malcolm Gladwell. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 7, The Ethnic Theory of Plane Crashes. Section 1. On the morning of August 5, 1997, the, the captain of Korean Air Flight 801 woke up at 6 a.m. His father would later, his family would later tell investigators that he went to the gym for an hour, then came home and studied the flight plan for that evening's journey to Guam. He napped and ate lunch. At three in the afternoon, he left for Seoul, departing early enough, his wife said, to continue his preparations at Kimpo International Airport. He had been a pilot with Korean Air for almost four years after coming over from the Korean Air Force. He had 8,900 hours of flight time, including 3,200 hours of experience in jumbo jets. A few months earlier, he had been given a flight safety award by his airline for successfully handling a jumbo jet engine failure at low altitude. He was 42 years old and in excellent health, with the exception of a bout of bronchitis that had been diagnosed 10 days before. At 7 p.m., the captain, his first officer, and the flight engineer met and collected the trip's paperwork. They would be flying a Boeing 747, the model known in the aviation world as the Classic. The aircraft was in perfect working order. It had once been the Korean presidential plane. Flight 801 departed the gate at 10.30 in the evening and was airborne 20 minutes later. Takeoff went without incident. Just before 1.30 in the morning, the, the plane broke out of the clouds and the flight crew glimpsed lights off in the distance. Is it Guam? The flight engineer asked. Then after a pause, he said, it's Guam, Guam. The captain chuckled, good. The first officer reported to air con traffic control that the airplane was, quote, clear of Charlie Bravo, cumulonimbus, cumulonimbus clouds, and requested radar vectors for runway six left, end quote. The plane began its descent toward Guam Airport. They would make a visual approach, the captain said. He had flown into Guam, Air Guam Airport from Kimpo eight times previously, most recently a month ago, and he knew the airport and the surrounding terrain well. The landing gear went down. The flaps were extended 10 degrees. At 0141 and 48 seconds, the captain said, wiper on, and the flight engineer turned them on. It was raining. The first officer then said, not in sight? He was looking for the runway, but he could not see it. One second later, the ground proximity warning system called out in his electro electronic voice, 500 feet. The plane was 500 feet off the ground. But how could that be if they couldn't even see the runway? Two seconds passed. The flight engineer said, eh, in an astonished tone of voice. At 1042 and 19 seconds, the first officer said, let's make a missed approach, meaning let's pull up and make a large circle and try the landing again. One second later, the flight engineer said, not in sight. The first officer added, not in sight, missed approach. At 0142 and 22 seconds, the flight engineer said, go around. At 0142 and 43 seconds, the captain repeated, go around, but he was too slow to pull the plane out of its descent. At 0142 and 26 seconds, the plane hit the side of Nimitz Hill, a densely vegetated mountain three miles southwest of the airport, $60 million and 212,000 kilograms of steel slamming into rocky ground at 100 miles per hour. 
The plane skidded for 2,000 feet, severing an oil pipeline and snapping pine trees before falling into a ravine and bursting into flame. By the time rescue workers reached the crash site, 228 of the 254 people on board had perished. Section 2. 20 years before the crash of KAL-801, a Korean Air Boeing 707 wandered into Russian airspace and was shot down by a Soviet military jet over the Barents Sea. It was an accident, meaning the kind of rare and catastrophic event that, but for the grace of God, could happen to any airline. It was investigated and analyzed. Lessons were learned. Reports were filed. Then, two years later, a Korean Air Boeing 747 crashed into Seoul. Two accidents in two years is not a good sign. Three years after that, the airline lost another 747 near Sakhalin Island in Russia, followed by a Boeing 707 that went down over the Andaman Sea in 1987. Two more crashes in 1989 in Tripoli and Seoul, and then another in 1994 in Jeju, South Korea. To put the record in perspective, the loss rate for an airline like the American carrier United Airlines in the period 1988 to 1998 was 0.27 per million departures, which means that they lost a plane in an accident about once in every 4 million flights. The loss rate for Korean Air in the same period was 4.79 per million departures, more than 17 times higher. Korean Air's planes were crashing so often that when the National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB, and the U.S. agency responsible for investigating plane crashes within American jurisdiction did its report on the Guam crash, it was forced to include an addendum listing all the new Korean Air accidents that had happened just since the investigation had begun. The Korean Air 747 that crash-landed at Kimpo in Seoul almost a year to the day after Guam. The jetliner that overran a runway at Korea's Ulsan Airport eight weeks after that. The Korean Air McDonnell Douglas 83 that rammed into an embankment at Pohong Airport the following March. And then, a month after that, the Korean Air passenger jet that crashed into a residential area of Shanghai. Had the NTSB waited just a few more months, it could have added another. The Korean Air cargo plane that crashed just after takeoff from London's Stansted Airport despite the fact that a warning bell went off in the cockpit no fewer than 14 times. In April of 1999, Delta Airlines and Air France suspended their flying partnership with Korean Air. In short order, the U.S. Army, which maintains, its which maintains thousands of troops in South Korea, forbade its personnel from flying with the airline. South Korea's safety rating was downgraded by the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration, and Canadian officials informed Korean Air's management that they were considering revoking the company's overflight and landing privileges in Canadian airspace. In the midst of the controversy, an outside audit of Korean Air's operations was leaked to the public. The 40-page report was quickly denounced by Korean Air officials as sensationalized and underrepresentative, but by that point, it was too late to save the company's reputation. The audit detailed instances of flight crews smoking cigarettes on the tarmac during refueling and in the freight area and when the plane was in the air. The audit stated, quote, crew read newspapers throughout the flight, often with newspapers held up in such a way that if a warning light came on, it would not be noticed, end quote. 
The report detailed bad morale, numerous procedural violations, and the alarming conclusion that training standards for the 747 Classic were so poor that, quote, there is some concern as to whether first officers on the Classic fleet could land the aircraft if the captain became totally incapacitated, end quote. By the time of the Shanghai crash, the Korean President Kim Jae-jong Jae felt compel compelled to speak up. Quote, the issue of Korean air is not a matter of an individual company, but a matter of the whole country. He said, our country's credibility is at stake, end quote. Kim then switched the presidential plane from Korean air to its newer rival, Asiana. But then a small miracle happened. Korean air turned itself around. Today, the airline is a me member in good standing of the prestigious Sky Team Alliance. Its safety record since 1999 is spotless. In 2006, Korean Air was given the Phoenix Award by Air Transport World in recognition of its transformation. Aviation experts will tell you that Korean Air is now as safe as any airline in the world. In this chapter, we're going to conduct a crash investigation, listen to the black box cockpit recorder, examine the flight records, look at the weather and the terrain in the airport conditions, and compare the Guam crash with other very similar plane crashes all in an attempt to understand precisely how the company transformed itself from the worst kind of outlier into one of the world's best airlines. It is a complex and sometimes strange story, but it turns on a very simple fact, the same fact that runs through the tangled history of Harlan and the Michigan students. Korean Air did not succeed. It did not right itself until it acknowledged the importance of its cultural legacy. Section 3. Plane crashes rarely happen in real life the same way they happen in the movies. Some engine part does not explode in a fiery bang. The rudder doesn't suddenly snap under the force of takeoff. The captain doesn't gasp, dear God, as he's thrown back against his seat. The typical commercial jetliner, at this point in its stage of development, is about as dependable as a toaster. Plane crashes are much more likely to be the result of an accumulation of minor difficulties in seemingly trivial malfunctions. There's an extended footnote here, which I'm going to read. This is not true just of plane crashes. It's true of virtually all industrial accidents. One of the most famous accidents in history, for example, was the near meltdown of Pennsylvania's Three Mile Island nuclear station in 1979. Three Mile Island so traumatized the American public that it sent the U.S. nuclear power industry into a tailspin from which it has never fully recovered. But what actually happened at that nuclear reactor began as something far from dramatic. As the sociologist Charles Perrow shows in his classic Normal Accidents, there was a relatively routine blockage in what is called the plant's polisher, a kind of giant water filter. The blockage caused moisture to leak into the plant's air system, inadvertently tripping two valves and shutting down the flow of cold water into the plant's steam generator. Like all nuclear reactors, Three Mile Island had a backup cooling system for precisely this situation. But on that particular day, for reasons that no one really understands, the valves for the backup system weren't open. Someone had closed them, and an indicator in the control room showing that they were closed was blocked by a repair tag hanging from a switch above it. That left the reactor dependent on another backup system, a special sort of relief valve. But, as luck would have it, the relief valve wasn't working properly that day either. It stuck open when it was supposed to close, 
And to make matters even worse, a gauge in the control in the control room that should have told the operators that the relief valve wasn't working was itself not working either. By the time Three Mile Island's engineers realized what was happening, the reactor had come dangerously close to a meltdown. No single big thing went wrong at Three Mile Island. Rather, five completely unrelated events occurred in sequence, each of which, had it happened in isolation, would have caused no more than a hiccup in the plant's ordinary operation. End of extended footnote. In a typical crash, for example, the weather is poor, not terrible necessarily, but bad enough that the pilot feels a little bit more stressed than usual. In an overwhelming number of crashes, the plane is behind schedule, so the pilots are hurrying. In 52% of the crashes, the pilot at the time of the accident has been awake for 12 hours or more, meaning that he is tired and not thinking sharply. 44% of the time, the two pilots have never flown together before, so they're not exactly comfortable with each other. Then the errors start, and it's not just one error. The typical accident involves seven consecutive human errors. One of the pilots does something wrong that by itself is not a problem. Then one of them makes another error on top of that, which combined with the first still does not amount to a catastrophe. But then they make a third error on top of that, and then another, and another, and another, and another. And it is the combination of all those errors that leads to disaster. These seven errors, furthermore, are rarely problems of knowledge or flying skill. It's not that the pilot has to negotiate some critical technical maneuver and fails. The kinds of errors that cause plane crashes are invariably errors of teamwork and communication. One pilot knows something important and somehow doesn't tell the other pilot. One pilot does something wrong and the other pilot doesn't catch the error. A tricky situation needs to be resolved through a complex series of steps. And somehow the pilots fail to coordinate and miss one of them. Quote, the whole flight deck design is intended to be operated by two people. And that operation works best when you have one person checking the other, or both people willing to participate, says Earl Weiner, who was for many years chief engineer for safety at Boeing. He continues, Airplanes are very unforgiving if you don't do things right. And for a long time, it's been clear that if you have two people operating the airplane cooperatively, you will have a safer operation than if you have a single pilot flying the plane and another person who is simply there to take over if the pilot is incapacitated. End quote. Consider, for example, the famous, in aviation circles anyway, the famous crash of the Colombian airliner Avianca, Flight 052, in January of 1990. The Avianca accident so perfectly il illustrates the characteristics of the modern plane crash that it is studied in flight schools. In fact, what happened to that flight is so similar to what would happen seven years later in Guam that it's a good place to start our investigation into the mystery of Korean Air's plane crash problem. The captain of the plane was Loriano Cavieres. His first officer was Mauricio Klotz. They were en route from Medellin, Colombia to New York City's Kennedy Airport. The weather that evening was poor. There was a northeaster going up and down the east coast, bringing with it dense fog and high winds. 203 flights were already delayed at Newark. 200 flights were delayed at LaGuardia, 161 in Philadelphia, 53 at Boston's Logan Airport, and 99 ahead of them at Kennedy. Because of the weather, Avianca was held up by air traffic control three times on its way to New York. The plane circled over Norfolk, Virginia for 19 minutes, 
above Atlantic City for 29 minutes and 40 miles south of Kennedy Airport for another 29 minutes. For an, after an hour and a half of delay, Avianca was cleared for landing. As the plane came in on its final approach, the pilots encountered severe wind shear. One moment they were flying into a strong headwind, forcing them to add extra power to maintain their momentum on the glide down. The next moment, the headwind dropped dramatically, and they were traveling much too fast to make the runway. Typically, the plane would have been flying on autopilot in that situation, reacting immediately and appropriately to wind shear. But the autopilot on the plane was malfunctioning and had been switched off. At the last moment, the pilot pulled up and executed a go-around. The plane did the wide circle over Long Island and reapproached Kennedy Airport. Suddenly, one of the plane's engines failed. Seconds later, a second engine failed. Show me the runway, the pilot cried out, hoping desperately that he was close enough to Kennedy to somehow glide his crippled plane to safety. But Kennedy was still 16 miles away. The 707 slammed into the estate owned by the father of the tennis champion, Joms McEnroe, in the posh Long Island town of Oyster Bay. 73 of the 158 passengers aboard died. It took less than a day for the cause of the crash to be determined. Fuel exhaustion. There was nothing wrong with the aircraft. There was nothing wrong with the airport. The pilots were not drunk or high. The plane had run out of gas. Section 4. It's a classic case, said Surin Rothwaite, a veteran pilot who has been involved for years in human factors research, which is the analysis of how human beings interact with complex systems like nuclear power plants and airplanes. Rotwat is Sri Lankan, a lively man in his 40s who has been flying commercial jets his entire adult life. We were sitting in the lobby of the Sheraton Hotel in Manhattan. He'd just landed his jumbo jet at Kennedy Airport after a long flight from Dubai. Ratwat knew the Avianca case well. He began to tick off the typical crash preconditions. The northeaster, the delayed flight, the minor technical malfunction with the autopilot, the three long holding patterns, which meant not only 80, 80, extra minutes of extra flying time, but flying extra low, or extra flying at low altitudes, where a plane burns far more fuel than it does in the thin air high above the clouds. Quote, they were flying a 707, which is an older airplane and is very challenging to fly, says Surin Ratwat. The thing, that thing is a lot of work. The controls were not hydraulically powered. They were connected by a series of pulleys and pull rods to the physical metal surfaces of the plane. So you have to be quite physically strong to fly that airplane. You heave it around the sky. It's as much physical effort as rowing a boat. My current airplane I fly with my fingertips. I use a joystick. The instruments are huge and theirs were the size of coffee cups. His autopilot was gone, so the captain had to keep looking around these nine instruments, each the size of a coffee cup, while his right hand was controlling the speed and his left hand was flying the airplane. He was maxed out. He had no resources left to do anything else. And that's what happens when you're tired. Your decision-making skills erode. You start missing things, things that you would pick up on any other day." End quote. In the black box recovered from the crash site, Captain Cavieres in the final hour of the flight is heard to be repeatedly asking for the directions from ATC to be translated into Spanish, as if he no longer had the energy to make use of his English. On nine occasions, he also asked for directions to be repeated. 
Tell me things louder, he said right near the end. I'm not hearing them. When the plane was circling for 40 minutes just southeast of Kennedy, when everyone on the flight deck clearly knew they were running out of fuel, the pilot could easily have asked to land at Philadelphia, which was just 65 miles away. But he didn't. It was as if he had locked in on New York. On the aborted landing, the plane's ground proximity warning system went off no fewer than 15 times, telling the captain that he was bringing the plane in too low. But he seemed oblivious. When he aborted the landing, he should have circled back immediately, but he didn't. He was exhausted. Through it all, the cockpit was filled with a heavy silence. Sitting next to Caviedes was his first officer, Mauricio Klotz, and in the flight recorder, there were long stretches of nothing but rustling and engine noise. It was Klotz's responsibility to conduct all communication with ATC, which meant that his role that night was absolutely critical. But his behavior was oddly passive. It wasn't until the third holding pattern southwest of Kennedy Airport that Klotz told ATC that he didn't think the airport that the plane had enough fuel to reach an alternative airport. The next thing the crew heard from ATC was, just stand by, and following that, cleared to the Kennedy Airport. Investigators later surmised that the Avianca pilots must have assumed that ATC was jumping them to the head of the queue in front of the dozens of other planes circling Kennedy. In fact, they weren't. They were just being added to the end of the line. It was a crucial misunderstanding upon which the fate of the plane would ultimately rest. But did the pilots raise the issue again, looking for clarification? No, nor did they bring up the issue of fuel again for another 38 minutes. Section 5 To Ratwat, the silence in the cockpit made no sense. And as a way of explaining why, Ratwat began to talk about what had happened to him on that morning on the way over from Dubai. Quote, We had this lady in the back. We reckoned she was having a stroke, seizing, vomiting, and in bad shape. She was an Indian lady whose daughter lives in the States. Her husband spoke no English, no Hindi, only Punjabi, and no one could communicate with him. He looked like he had just walked off a village in the Punjab, and they had absolutely no, no money. I was actually over Moscow when it happened, but I knew we couldn't go to Moscow. I didn't know what would happen to these people if we did. I said to the first officer, you fly the plane. We have to go to Helsinki, end quote. The immediate problem Ratwat faced was that they were less than halfway through a very long flight, which meant they had far more fuel in their tanks, tanks, in their tanks than they usually do when it comes time to land. Quote, we were 60 tons over maximum landing weight, so now I had to make a choice. I could dump the fuel, but countries hate it when you dump fuel. It's messy stuff, and they would have routed me somewhere over the Baltic Sea, and it would have taken me 40 minutes, and the lady probably would have died. So I decided to land anyway. My choice. End quote. They decided to land. That meant the plane was landing heavy. They couldn't use the automated landing system because it wasn't set up to handle a plane with that much weight. Quote, at that stage, I took over the controls. I had to ensure that the airplane touched down very softly, otherwise there would have been a risk of structural damage. It could have been a real mess. There are also performance issues with being heavy. If you clear the runway and have to go around, you may not have enough thrust to climb back up. It was a lot of work. You're juggling a lot of balls. You've got to get it right. Because it was a long flight, there were two other pilots. So I got them up, and they got involved in doing everything as well. We had four people up there, which really helped in coordinating everything. 
I'd never been to Helsinki before. I had no idea how the airport was, no idea whether the runway was long enough. I had to find an approach, figure out if we could land there, figure out the performance parameters, and tell the company what we were doing. At one point, I was talking to three different people, from Dubai, from Medlink, which is a service in Arizona where they put a doctor on call, and I was talking to the two doctors who were attending to the lady in the back. It was nonstop for 40 minutes. Quote, we were lucky the weather was very good in Helsinki. Trying to do an approach in bad weather, plus with a heavy plane, plus at an unfamiliar airport, that is just not good. Because it was in Finland, a first world country, they were well set up, very flexible. I said to them, I'm very heavy. I would like to land into the wind. You want to slow yourself down in that situation. They said no problem. They landed us in the opposite direction than they normally use. We came in over the city, which they usually avoid for noise reasons. End quote. Thinking about what was required, think about what was required of Ratwat. He had to be a good pilot. That much goes without saying. He had to have the technical skill to land heavy. But almost everything else Ratwat did that made that emergency landing a success fell outside the strict definition of piloting skills. He had to weigh the risk of damaging his plane against the risk of the woman's life. And then, once that choice was made, he had to think through the implications of Helsinki versus Moscow for the sick passengers in the back. He had to educate himself quickly on the parameters of an airport he had never seen before. Could it handle one of the biggest jets in the sky at 60 tons over its normal landing weight? But most of all, he had to talk to the passengers, to the doctors, to his co-pilot, to the second crew he woke up from their nap, to his superiors back home in Dubai, to the air traffic control in Helsinki. It's safe to say that in the 40 minutes that passed between the passenger's stroke and the landing in Helsinki, there were no more than a handful of seconds of silence in the cockpit. What was required of Ratwat was that he communicate, and communicate not just in the sense of issuing commands, but also in the sense of encouraging and cajoling and calming and negotiating and sharing information in the clearest and most transparent of manner. Section 6. Here, by contrast, is the transcript of, from Avianca 052, as the plane is going in for its abortive first landing. The issue is the weather. The fog is so thick that Klotz and Caviendes cannot figure out where they are. Pay close attention, not to the content of the conversation, but to the form. In particular, we'll note the length of the silences between utterances and to the tone of Klotz's remarks. Caviedes, the runway, where is it? I don't see it. I don't see it. They take up the landing gear. The captain tells Klotz to ask for a traffic pattern. Then ten seconds passed. Caviendes, seemingly to himself, says, We don't have fuel. Seventeen seconds pass as the pilots give technical instructions to each other. Caviedes, I don't know what happened with the runway. I didn't see it. Klotz, I didn't see it. Air traffic control comes in and tells them to make a left turn. Caviedes, tell them we are in an emergency. Klotz, to air traffic control. That's right to 180 on the heading. And, uh, we'll try again. We are running out of fuel. Imagine the scene in the cockpit. The plane is dangerously low on fuel. They have just blown their first shot at a landing. They have no idea how much longer the plane is capable of flying. The captain is desperate, saying, Tell them we are in an emergency. And what does Klotz say? 
That's right to 180 on the heading, and uh, we'll try once again. We're running out of fuel. To begin with, the phrase running out of fuel has no meaning in air traffic control terminology. All planes, as they approach their destination, are by definition running out of fuel. Did clocks mean that O52 no longer had enough fuel to make it to another alternative airport? Did he mean that they were beginning to get worried about their fuel? Next, consider the structure of the critical sentence. Klotz begins with a routine acknowledgement of the instructions from ATC and does not mention his concern about fuel until the second half of the sentence. It's as if he were to say in a restaurant, Yes, I'll have some more coffee, and uh, I'm choking on a chicken bone. How seriously would the waiter take him? The air traffic controller with whom Klotz was speaking testified later that he just took it as a passing comment. On stormy nights, air traffic controllers hear pilots talking about running out of fuel all the time. Even the uh that Klotz inserts between the two halves of his sentence serves to undercut the importance of what he is saying. According to another of the controllers who handled 052 that night, Klotz spoke in a very nonchalant manner. There was no urgency in his voice. Section 7. The term used by linguists to describe what Klotz was engaging in at that moment is mitigated speech, which refers to any attempt to downplay or sugarcoat the meaning of what is being said. We mitigate when we are being polite or when we are ashamed or embarrassed or when we are being deferential to authority. If you want your boss to do you a favor, you don't say, I'll need this by Monday. You mitigate and you say, don't bother if it's too much trouble, but if you have a chance to look at this over the weekend, that would be wonderful. In a situation like that, mitigation is entirely appropriate. In other situations, however, like a cockpit on a stormy night, it is a problem. The linguists Ute Fisher and Judith Orazano once gave the following hypothetical scenario to a group of captains and first officers and asked them how they would respond. Quote, you notice on the weather radar an area of heavy precipitation 25 miles ahead. The pilot is maintaining his present course at Mach 0.73, even though embedded thunderstorms have been reported in your area and you encounter modern turbulence. You want to ensure that your aircraft will not penetrate this area. Question, what do you say to the pilot? End quote. In Fisher's and Orazanu's minds, there were at least six ways to try to persuade the pilot to change course and avoid the bad weather, each with a different level of mitigation. One is a direct command. Turn 30 degrees to the right. It is the most direct and explicit way of making a point imaginable. Zero mitigation. Two, crew obligation statement. I think we need to deviate right about now. Notice the use of the word we and the fact that the request is now much less specific. That's a little bit softer. The third is a crew suggestion. Let's go around this weather. Implicit in this statement is we're in this together. Four, query. Which direction would you like to deviate? That's even softer than a crew suggestion because the speaker is conceding that he is not in charge. Five, preference. I think that it would be wise to turn right or left. Six, hint. Whew, that return at 25 miles looks mean. This is the most mitigated statement of all. Fisher and Arazanu found that captains overwhelmingly said that they would issue a command in that situation, turn 30 degrees right. They were talking to a subordinate. They had no fear of being blunt. 
The first officers, on the other hand, were talking to their boss, and so they overwhelmingly chose the most mitigated alternative they hinted. It's hard to read Fisher's, Fisher and Arazanu's study and not be just a little bit alarmed because a hint is the hardest kind of request to decode and the easiest to refuse. In the 1982 Air Florida crash outside Washington, D.C., the first officer tried three times to tell the captain that the plane had a dangerous amount of ice on its wings. But listen how he says it. It's all hints. First officer. Look how the ice is just hanging on his, uh, back. Back there. See that? Later. See all those icicles on the back there and everything? Later. Boy, this is, a this is a losing battle here on trying to de-ice those things. It gives you a false sense of security. That's all it does. Finally, as they get clearance for takeoff, the first officer upgrades two notches to a crew suggestions, saying... Let's check those wing tops again, since we've been settling here a while. And the captain replies, I think we get to go here in a minute. The first thing the first off the last thing the first officer says to the captain, just before the plane plunges into Potom into the Potomac River, is not a hint, a suggestion, or a command. It's a simple statement of fact, and this time the captain agrees with him. Quote from the first officer, Larry, we're going down, Larry. Captain says, I know it. End quote. Mitigation explains one of the great anomalies of a plane crash. In commercial airlines, captains and first officers split the flying duties equally. But, historically, crashes have been far more likely to happen when the captain is in the flying seat. At first, that seems to make no sense, since the captain is almost always the pilot with the most experience. But think about the Air Florida crash. If the first officer had been the captain, he, would he have hinted three times? No, he would have commanded, and the plane would not have crashed. Planes are safer when the least experienced pilot is flying, because it means that the second pilot is not going to be afraid to speak up. Combating mitigation has become one of the great crusades in commercial aviation in the past 15 years. Every eight major airline now has what is called crew resource management training, which is designed to teach junior crew members how to communicate clearly and assertively. For example, many airlines teach a standardized procedure for co-pilots to challenge the pilot if he or she thinks something has gone terribly awry. Like, Captain, I'm concerned about, and then, Captain, I'm uncomfortable with, and if the captain still doesn't respond, Captain, I believe the situation is unsafe. And if that fails, the first officer is actually required to take over the airplane. Aviation experts will tell you that this is the success of this war on mitigation, as much as anything else that accounts for the extraordinary decline in airline accidents in recent years. On a very simple level, says Rotwat, sorry, quote, on a very simple level, one of the things we insist upon at my airline is that the first officer and the captain call each other by their first names. We think that helps. It's just harder to say, Captain, you're doing something wrong, than to use a name, end quote. Rotwat took mitigation very seriously. You couldn't be a student of the Avianca crash and not feel that way. He went on, one thing I personally try to do is, I try to put myself a little down. I say to my co-pilots, you don't fly very often, three or four times a month. You f or I don't fly very often, three or four times a month. You fly a lot more. If you see me doing something stupid, it's because I don't fly very often. So tell me, help me out. And hopefully that helps them speak up. Section eight, 
Back to the cockpit of Avianca 052, the plane is now turning away from Kennedy after the aborted first attempt at landing. Klotz has just been on the radio with ATC, trying to figure out when they can try to land again. Caviedes turns to him, quote, Caviedes, what did he say? Klotz, I already advised him that we are going to attempt again because now we can't. Four seconds of silence pass. Caviedes, advise him that we are in an emergency. Four more seconds of silence pass. The captain tries again. Caviedes, did you tell him? Klotz, yes, sir, I already advised him. Klotz starts talking to ATC, going over routine details. Klotz, 150 maintaining 2000 Avianca 052 heavy. The captain is clearly at the edge of panic. Caviedes, advise him that we don't have fuel. Klotz gets back on the radio with ATC. Klotz, climb and maintain 3,000 and uh, we're running out of fuel, sir. End quote. There it is again. No mention of the magic word emergency, which is what air traffic controllers are trained to listen for. Just the running out of fuel at the end of the sentence preceded by the mitigating uh. If you're counting errors, the Avianca crew is now in the double digits. Quote, Caviedes, did you already advise him that we don't have fuel? Klotz, yes, sir, I already advised him. Caviedes, bueno, end quote. If it were not the prelude to a tragedy, their back and forth would actually resemble an Abbott and Costello comedy routine. A little over a minute passes, then, quote, air traffic control, and Evianca 052 Heavy, uh, I'm going to bring you about 15 miles northeast and then turn you back onto the approach. Is that okay with you and your fuel? Klotz replies, I guess so. Thank you very much. End quote. He says, I guess so. Thank you very much. They are about to crash. One of the flight attendants enters the cockpit to find out how serious the situation is. The flight engineer points to the empty fuel gauge and makes a throat-cutting gesture with his finger is. Footnote, we know this because the flight attendant survived the crash and testified to this at the inquest. End of footnote. The flight engineer says nothing, nor does anyone else for the next five minutes. There's radio chatter and routine business, and then the flight engineer cries out, Flame out on engine number four. Caviedes sh says, show me the runway, but the runway is 16 miles away. 36 seconds of silence pass out, or pass. Then the plane's air traffic controller calls out one last time. Quote, you have, uh, you have enough fuel to make it to the airport? End quote. And then the transcription ends. Section 9. The thing you have to understand about that crash, Rotwat said, quote, is that New York air traffic controllers are famous for being rude, aggressive, and bullying, but they are also very good. They handle a phenomenal amount of traffic in a very constrained environment. There is a famous story about a pilot who got lost trafficking around JFK. You have no idea how easy it is to do JFK once you're on the ground. It's at maze. It's a maze. Anyway, a female controller got mad at him and said, Stop. Don't do anything. Do not talk to me until I talk to you. And she just left him there. Finally, the pilot picks up the microphone and says, Madam, was I married to you in a former life? They, those traffic controllers in New York are unbelievable. The way they look at it, it's, I'm in control. Shut up and do what I say. 
they will snap at you. And if you don't like what they tell you to do, you have to snap back. And then they'll say, all right then. And if you don't, they will railroad you. I remember a British Airways flight was going into New York. They were being stuffed around by New York ATC. The British pilot said, you people should go to Heathrow and learn how to control an airplane. It's all in the spirit. If you are not used to that sort of give and take, New York ATC can be very, very intimidating. And those Avianca guys were just intimidated by the rapid fire. End quote. It is impossible to imagine Rotswat not making his case to Kennedy ATC. Not because he is obnoxious or pushy or has an, an enormous ego, but because he sees the world differently. If he needed help in the cockpit, he would wake up the second crew. If he thought Moscow was wrong, well, he would just go to Helsinki. And if Helsinki was going to bring him in with the wind, well, he was going to talk them into bringing him in against the wind. That morning when they were leaving Helsinki, he had the plane lined up on the wrong runway. And his first officer had quickly pointed out the area, or the error. error. The memory made Rotwat laugh, saying, quote, Masa is Swiss. He was very happy to correct me. He was giving me shit the whole way back. End quote. Rotwat continued, quote, All the guys had to do was tell the controller, We don't have the fuel to comply with what you were trying to do. All they had to say is, We can't do that. We have to land in the next 10 minutes. But they weren't able to put that across to the air traffic controller. End quote. It was at this point that Rotwat began to speak carefully because he was about to make the kind of cultural generalization that often leaves us uncomfortable. But what happened with Avianca was just so strange, so seemingly inexplicable, that it demanded a more complete explanation than simply that Klotz was incompetent and the captain was tired. There was something more profound, more structural going on in that cockpit. What if there was something about the pilots being Colombian that led to the crash? Rotswak says, quote, Look, no American pilot would put up with that. That's the thing. They would say, Listen, buddy, I have to land. End quote. Section 10. In the 1960s and 1970s, the Dutch psychologist Geert Hofsted was working for the Human Resources Department of IBM's European headquarters. Hofsted's job was to travel the globe and interview employees, asking about such things as how people solved problems and how they worked together and what their attitudes were to authority. The questionnaires were long and involved, and over time, Hofsted was able to develop an enormous database for analyzing the ways in which cultures differ from one another. Today, Hofsted's dimensions are among the most widely used paradigms in cross-cultural psychology. Hofsted argued, for example, that cultures can be usefully distinguished according to how much they expect individuals to look after themselves. He called that measurement the individualism-collectivism scale. The country that scores highest on the individualism end of that scale is the United States. Not surprisingly, the U.S. is, only the, is also the only industrialized country in the world that does not provide its citizens with universal health care. At the opposite end of the scale is Guatemala. Another example of Hofstede's dimensions is uncertainty avoidance. How well does a cultural tolerate ambiguity? Here are the top five uncertainty avoidance countries, according to Hofstede's database. That is, the countries most reliant on rules and plans and most likely to stick to procedure, regardless of circumstances. Number one is Greece. Number two is Portugal. Number three, Guatemala. Number four is Uruguay, and number five is Belgium. 
The bottom five, that is the cultures best able to tolerate ambiguity, are number 49 is Hong Kong, number 50, Sweden, number 51, Denmark, number 52, Jamaica, and 53, Singapore. It is, it is important to note that Hofstad wasn't suggesting that there was a right place or a wrong place to be on any one of these scales, nor was he saying that a culture's position on one of his dimensions was an ironclad predictor of how someone from that country behaves. It's not impossible, for example, for someone from Guatemala to be highly individualistic. What he was saying, instead, was something very similar to what Nisbet and Cohen argued after their hallway studies at the University of Michigan. Each of us has his own, has his or her own distinct personality, but overlaid on top of that are tendencies and assumptions and reflexes handed down to us by the history of the community we grew up in, and those differences are extraordinarily specific. Belgium and Denmark are only an hour or so apart by airplane, for example. Danes look a lot like Belgians, and if you were dropped on a street corner in Copenhagen, you wouldn't find it all that different from a street corner in Brussels. But when it comes to uncertainty avoidance, the two nations could not be further apart. In fact, Danes have more in common with Jamaicans when it comes to tolerant ambiguity than they do with some of their European peers. Denmark and Belgium may share in a kind of broad European liberal democratic tradition, but they have different histories, different political structures, different religious traditions, and different languages and food and architecture and literature, going back hundreds and hundreds of years. And the sum total of all those differences is that in certain kinds of situations that require dealing with risk and uncertainty, Danes tend to react in a very different way from Belgians. Of all of Hofstede's dimensions, though, perhaps the most interesting is what he called the Power Distance Index, or PDI. Power distance is concerned with attitudes toward hierarchy, specifically how much a particular culture values and respects authority. To measure it, Hofstede asks questions like, quote, How frequently, in your experience, does the following problem occur? Employees being afraid to express disagreement with their managers. End quote. To what extent do the less powerful members of organizations and institutions accept and expect that power is distributed unequally? How much are older people respected and feared? Are power holders entitled to special privileges? Hofstede wrote in his classic text, Culture's Consequences, quote, In low power distance index countries, power so- is something of which power holders are almost ashamed and they will try to underplay. I once heard a Swedish, low PDI, university official state that in order to exercise power, he tried not to look powerful. Leaders may enhance their informal status by renouncing formal symbols. In low PDI Austria, Prime Minister Bruno Kreisky was known to sometimes take the streetcar to work. In 1974, I actually saw the Dutch a low PDI country, the Dutch Prime Minister, Joop den Oil, on vacation with his motorhome at a camping site in Portugal. Such behavior of the powerful would be very unlikely in a high PDI country like Belgium or France. End quote. But beginning of a footnote. Footnote. Hofstede. Similarly, references... Hofstede similarly references a study done a few years ago that compared German and French manufacturing plants that were in the same industry and were roughly the same size. The French plants had, on average, 26% of their employees in management and special positions. 
the German, the Germans had 16%. The French, furthermore, paid their top management substantially more than the Germans did. What we are seeing in that comparison, Hofstede argued, is a difference in cultural attitudes toward hierarchy. The French have a power distance index twice that of the Germans. They require and support hierarchy in a way that Germans simply don't. End of footnote. You can imagine the effect that Hofstede's findings had on people in the aviation industry. What was their great battle over mitigated speech and teamwork about after all? It was an attempt to reduce power distance in the cockpit. Hofstede's question about power distance, quote, How frequently, in your experience, does the following problem occur? Employees being afraid to express disagreement with their managers, end quote. This was the very question aviation experts were asking first officers in their dealings with captains. And Hofstede's work suggested something that had not occurred to anyone in the aviation world, that the task of convincing first officers to assert themselves was going to depend an awful lot on their culture's power distance rating. That's what Rotwat meant when he said that no American would have been so fatally intimidated by the controllers at Kennedy Airport. America is a low power distance culture. When push comes to shove, Americans fall back on their Americanness. And that Americanness means that the air traffic controller is thought of as an equal. But what country is at the other end of that power distance scale? Colombia. In the wake of the Avianca crash, the psychologist Robert Hel- Helmreich, who has done more than anyone to argue for the role of culture in explaining pilot behavior, wrote a brilliant analysis of the accident in which he argued that you couldn't understand Klotz's behavior without taking into account his nationality, that his predicament that day was uniquely the predicament of someone who had a deep and abiding respect for authority. Helmreich wrote, quote, the high power distance of Colombians could have created frustration on the part of the first officer because the captain failed to show the kind of clear, if not autocratic decisions, decision-making expected in high power distance cultures. The first and second officers may have been waiting for the captain to make decisions, but still may have been will- unwilling to pose alternatives, end quote. Klotz sees himself as a subordinate. It's not his job to solve the crisis. It's the captain's, and the captain is exhausted and not saying anything. Then there's the domineering Kennedy Airport traffic controllers ordering the planes around. Klotz is trying to tell them that he's in trouble. He's using his own cultural language, speaking as a subordinate would to a superior. The controllers, though, are not Colombian. They're low-power distance New Yorkers. They don't see any hierarchical gap between themselves and the pilots in the air. And to them, mitigated speech from a pilot does not mean that the speaker is being appropriately deferential to a superior. It means that the pilot does not have a problem. There is a point in the transcript where the cultural miscommunication between the controllers and clots becomes so evident that it is almost painful to read. It's the last exchange between Avianca and the control tower, just minutes before the crash. Klotz has just said, I guess so, thank you very much, in response to the controller's question about their fuel state. Captain Caviedes then turns to Klotz and asks, what did he say? And Klotz replies, the guy is angry. Angry? Klotz's feelings are hurt. His plane is moments from disaster. But he cannot escape the dynamic dictated to him by his culture, in which subordinates must respect the dictates of their superiors. 
In his mind, he has tried and failed to communicate his plight, and his only conclusion is that he must have somehow offended his superiors in the control tower. In the aftermath of the Kennedy crash, the management of Avianca Airlines held a post-mortem. Avianca had just four accidents in quick succession, Barranquilla, Cutcuta, Madrid, and New York, and all four cases, the airline concluded, quote, had to do with airlines or with airplanes in perfect flight conditions, aircrew without physical limitations, and considered of, of, of average or above average flight ability, and still the accidents happened, end quote. In the company's Madrid crash, the report went on. The co-pilot tried to, to warn the captain about how dangerous the situation was, quote, the co-pilot was right, but they died because... When the co-pilot asked questions, his implied suggestions were very weak. The captain's reply was to ignore him totally. Perhaps the co-pilot did not want to appear rebellious, rebellious, questioning the judgment of the captain, or he did not want to play the fool because he knew that the, co- that the pilot had a great deal of experience flying in that area. The co-pilot should have advocated for his own opinions in a stronger way. End quote. Our ability to succeed at what we do is powerfully bound up from where we're from, and being a good pilot and coming from a high power distance culture is a difficult mix. Columbia by no means has the highest PDI, by the way. Helmreich and a colleague, Ashley Merritt, once measured the PDI of pilots from around the world. Number one was Brazil, and number two was South Korea. Section 11. The National Transportation Safety Board, which is the United States agency responsible for investigating plane crashes, is headquartered in a squat 70s-era office building on the banks of the Potomac River in Washington, D.C. Off the agency's long hallways are laboratories filled with airplane wreckage, a mangled piece of an engine turbine, a problematic piece of a helicopter rotor. On a shelf in one of the laboratories is the cockpit voice and data recorder, the so-called black box, from the devastating value jet crash in Florida in 1996, in which 110 people were killed. The recorder is encased in a shoebox-sized housing made out of thick, hardened steel, and on one end of the box is a jagged hole, as if someone or something had driven a stake into it with tremendous force. Some of the NTSB investigators are engineers who reconstruct crashes from the material evidence. Others are pilots. A surprising number of them, however, are psychologists, whose job is to listen to the cockpit recorder and reconstruct what was said and done by the flight crew in the final minutes before a crash. One of the NTSB's leading black box specialists is a gangly 50-ish PhD psychologist named Malcolm Brenner and Brenner was one of the investigators into the Korean air crash in Guam. Quote, Normally that approach into Guam is not difficult, end quote, from, Br- from Brenner. Guam Airport has what is called a glide scope, which is like a giant beam of light stretching up into the sky from the airport, and the pilot simply follows the beam all the way down to the runway. On this particular night, however, the glide slope was down. Brenner says, quote, It was out of service, It had been sent to another island to be repaired, so there was a notice to airmen that the glide slope was not operating, end quote. In the grand scheme of things, this should not have been a big problem. In the month the glide scope had been under repair, there had been about 1,500 safe landings at Guam Airport. 
It was just a small thing, an inconvenience really. That made the task of landing a plane just a little bit more difficult. Brenner continues, quote, The second complication was the weather. Normally in the South Pacific, you've got these brief weather situations, and they go by quickly. You don't really have storms. It's a tropical paradise. But that night, there were some little cells, and it just happens that those evening, that, that evening, they were going to be flying into one of those little cells a few miles from the airport. So the captain has to decide, what exactly is my procedure for landing? Well, they were cleared for what is called a VOR slash DME approach. It's complicated. It's a pain in the ass. It takes a lot of coordination to set up. You have to come down in steps. But then, as it happens, from miles out, the captain sees the lights of Guam. So he relaxes and he says, we're just going to do a visual approach. The VOR is a beacon that sends out a signal that allows pilots to calculate their altitude as they approach an airport. It's what pilots relied on before the invention of the glide scope. The captain's strategy was to use the VOR to get the plane close, and then, once he could see the lights of the runway, to land the plane visually. It seemed to make sense. Pilots do visual landings all the time. But every time a pilot chooses a plan, he is supposed to prepare a backup in, thing, in case things go awry. And this captain didn't. They should have been coordinating. He should have been briefing for the DME step-downs, says Brenner. But he doesn't talk about that. The storm cells are all around them. And what the captain seems to be doing is assuming that at some point he's going to break out of the clouds and see the airport. And if he doesn't see it by 560 feet, he'll just go around. Now that would work, except for one more thing. The VOR on which he's basing this strategy is not the airport. It's 2.5 miles away on Nimitz Hill. There's a number of airports in the world where this is true. Sometimes you can follow the VOR down and it takes you straight to the airport. Here, if you follow the VOR down, it takes you straight to Nimitz Hill. The pilot knew about the VOR. It was clearly stated in the airport's navigate or the airport's navigational charts. He'd flown into Guam eight times before, and in fact, he had specifically mentioned it in the briefing he gave before takeoff. But then, again, it was one in the morning, and he had been up since 6 a.m. the previous day. Brenner says, quote, We believe that fatigue was involved. It's a back-of-the-clock flight. You fly in and arrive at one in the morning, Korean time. Then you spend a few hours on the ground, and you fly back as the sun is coming up. The captain had flown it a month before. In that case, he slept on the first-class seat. Now he's flying in and says he's really tired, end quote. So there they are, three classic preconditions of a plane crash, the same three that set the stage for Avianca 052, a minor technical malfunction, bad weather, and a tired pilot. By itself, none of these would be sufficient for an accident, but all three in combination require the combined efforts of everyone in the cockpit, and that's where Korean Air 801 ran into trouble. Section 12. Here is the flight recorder transcript of the final 30 minutes of KAL Flight 801. It begins with the captain complaining of exhaustion. 012-0120-01. Captain, if this round trip is more than a nine-hour trip, we might get a little something. With eight hours, we get nothing. Eight hours does not help us at all. They make us work to maximum, up to maximum. Probably this way, hotel expenses will be saved for cabin crews, and maximize the flight hours. 
Anyways, they make us work to maximum. There is the sound of a man shifting in his seat, and a minute passes. O one two one thirteen, Captain, eh, really sleepy, and then some unintelligible words. First officer says, of course. Then comes one of the most critical moments in the flight. The first officer decides to speak up. First officer says, don't you think it rains more in this area here? The first officer must have thought long and hard before making that comment. He was not flying in the easy collegiality of Surin Ratwat's cockpit. Among Korean air flight crews, the expectation on layover, layovers used to be that the junior officers would attend to the captain to the point of making him dinner or purchasing gifts. As one former Korean air pilot puts it, the sensibility in many of the airline's cockpits was that the captain is in charge and does what he wants, when he likes, how he likes, and everyone else sits quietly and does nothing. In the Delta report on Korean air that was posted anonymously on the internet, one of the auditors tells a story of sitting in on a Korean air flight where the first officer got confused while listening to air traffic control and mistakenly put the plane on course intended for another plane. Quote, the flight engineer picked up something was wrong but said nothing. The first officer was also not happy but said nothing. Despite good visual conditions, crew did not look out and see that the current heading would not bring them to the airfield, end quote. Finally, the plane's radar picks up the mistake, and then comes the key sentence. Quote, Captain hit first officer with the back of his hand for making the error, end quote. Hit him with the back of his hand? When the three pilots all met that evening at Kimpo for their pre-flight preparation, the first officer and the engineer would have bowed to the captain. They would have all shaken hands and would have said respectfully, it is first time to meet you. The Korean language has no fewer than six different levels of conversational address, depending on the relationship between the addressee and the addresser. Formal deference, informal deference, blunt, familiar, intimate, and plain. The first officer would not have dared to use one of the more intimate or familiar forms when he addressed the captain. This is a culture in which enormous attention is paid to the relative standing of any two people in a conversation. The Korean linguist Ho Min Son writes, quote, At a dinner table, the lowest ranking person must wait until the higher ranking person sits down and starts eating, while the reverse does not hold true. One does not smoke in the presence of a social superior. When drinking with a social superior, the subordinate hides his glass and turns away from the superior. In greeting a social superior, although not an inferior, a Korean must bow. A Korean must rise when an obvious social superior appears on the scene, and he cannot pass in front of an obvious social superior. All social behavior and actions are conducted in the order of seniority or ranking. As the saying goes, there is even order to drinking cold water." End quote. So, when the first officer says, don't you think it rains more in this area here? We know that he means by that, he means, Captain, you have committed us to visual approach with no backup plan, and the weather is terrible outside. You think that we will break out of the clouds in time to see the runway, but if we don't, it's pitch black outside and pouring rain and the glide scope is down. But he can't say that due to social circumstances. He hints, and in his mind, he said as much as he is allowed to, to a superior. The first officer will not mention the weather again. It is just after that moment that the plane briefly breaks out of the clouds, and off in the distance, the pilots see light. 
Is it Guam? The flight engineer asks. Then after a pause, he says, it's Guam. Guam. The captain chuckles. Good. But this isn't good. It's an illusion. They've come out of the clouds for a moment. They are still 20 miles from the airport, and there is an enormous amount of bad weather ahead of them. The flight engineer knows this because it's his responsibility to track the weather, so now he decides to speak up. He says, Captain, the weather radar has helped us a lot. Oh, the weather radar has helped us a lot. A second hint from the flight deck. What the engineer means is just what the first officer meant. What he means is, this isn't a night where you can rely on your eyes to land your plane. Look at what the weather radar is telling us. There is trouble ahead. To Western ears, it seems strange that the flight engineer would bring up this subject just once. Western communication has what linguists call a transmitter orientation. That is, it is considered the responsibility of the speaker to communicate ideas clearly and unambiguously. Even in the tragic case of the Air Florida crash, where the first officer never does more than hint about the danger posed by the ice, he still hints four times, phrasing his comments four different ways in an attempt to make his meaning clear. He may have been constrained by the power distance between himself and the captain, but he was still operating within a Western cultural context, which holds that if there is confusion, it is the fault of the speaker. But Korea, like many Asian countries, is receiver-oriented. It is up to the listener to make sense of what is being said. In the engineer's mind, he has actually said a lot. Professional linguist Son gives the following conversation as an illustration, an exchange between an employee, Mr. Kim, and his boss, a division chief, Kwa Chang. Kwa Chang, I'm cold and I'm kind of hungry. What he means is, why don't you buy a drink or something to eat? Mr. Kim, how about a glass of liquor? Mr. Kim means, I will buy liquor for you. Kwa Cheng says, it's okay, don't bother. But he means, I will accept your offer if you repeat it. Mr. Kim says, you must be hungry, how about going out? But means, I insist upon treating you. Kwa Cheng says, shall I do so? And in that meaning, as I accept. There is something beautiful in the subtlety of that exchange in the attention that each party must pay to the motivations and desires of the other. It is civilized in the truest sense of the word. It does not permit insensitivity or indifference. But high power distance communication only works when the listener is capable of paying close attention, and it works only if the two parties in a conversation have the luxury of time in order to unwind each other's meanings. It doesn't work in an airplane cockpit on a stormy night with an exhausted pilot trying to land at an airport with a broken glide scope. Section 13. God, this chapter is long. In the year 2000, Korean Air finally acted, bringing in an outsider from Delta Airlines, David Greenberg, to run their flight operations. Greenberg's first step was something that would make no sense if you did not understand the true roots of Korean Air's problems. He evaluated the English language skills of all the airline's flight crews. He remembers, quote, some of them were fine and some of them were not. So we set up a program to assist and improve the proficiency of aviation English, end quote. His second step was to bring in a Western firm, a subsidiary of Boeing called Altion, to take over the company's training and instruction programs. Quote, Altion conducted their training in English. They didn't speak Korean, end quote. 
Greenberg's rule was simple. The new language of Korean air was English, and if you wanted to remain a pilot at the company, you had to be fluent in that language. He says, quote, This was not a purge. Everyone had the same opportunity, and those who found the language issue challenging were allowed to go out and study on their own nickel. But language was the filter. I can't recall that anyone was fired for flying proficiency shortcomings, end quote. Greenberg's rationale was that English is a, aviation, is a language of the aviation world. When the pilots sat in the cockpit and worked their way through the written checklists that flight crews follow on every significant point of procedure, those checklists were in English. When they talked to air traffic control anywhere in the world, those conversations would be in English. Quote, if you were trying to land at JFK at rush hour, there is no nonverbal communication, says Greenberg. It's people talking to people, so you need to be darn sure that you understand what's going on. You can say that two Koreans side by side don't need to speak English, but, they, but if they are arguing about what the guys outside said in English, then language is important, end quote. Greenberg wanted to give his pilots an alternative identity. Their problem was that they were trapped in roles dictated by the heavyweight of their country's cultural legacy. They needed an opportunity to step outside those roles when they sat in the cockpit, and language was the key to that transformation. In English, they would be free of the sharply defined gradients of Korean hierarchy, formal deference, informal deference, blunt, familiar, intimate, and plain. Instead, the pilots could participate in a culture and language with a very different legacy. The crucial part of Greenberg's reform, however, is what he didn't do. He didn't throw up his hands in despair. He didn't fire all of his Korean pilots and start again with pilots from a low-power distance culture. He knew that cultural legacies matter, that they are powerful and pervasive, and that they persist long after, after their original usefulness has passed. But he didn't assume that legacies are an indelible part of who we are. He believed that if the Koreans were honest about where they came from and were willing to confront those aspects of their heritage that did not suit the aviation world, that they could change. He offered his pilots what everyone from hockey players to software tycoons to takeover lawyers has been offered on their way to success, an opportunity to transform their relationship to their work. After leaving Korean Air, Greenberg helped start a, airline for a freight airline car called Cargo 360, and he took a number of Korean pilots with him. They were all flight engineers who had been number three, after the captain and first officer, in the strict hierarchy of the original Korean Air. Quote, These were guys who had performed in the old environment at, at Korean Air for as much as 15 to 18 years. They had accepted that subservient role. They had been at the bottom of the ladder. We retra retrained them and put them with Western crew. They've been a great success. They've all changed their style. They take initiative. They pull their share of the load. They don't wait for someone to direct them. These are senior people in their 50s with a long history in one context who have been retrained and are now successful doing their job in a Western cockpit. We took them out of their culture and renormed them, end quote. This is an extraordinarily liberating example. When we understand what it really means to be a good pilot, when we understand how much culture and history and the world outside of the individual matter to professional success, then we don't have to throw up our hands in the air, in despair, at an airline where pilots crash planes into the sides of mountains. We have a way to make successes out of the unsuccessful. 
But first, we have to be frank about a subject that we would all too often rather ignore. In 1994, when Boeing first published safety data showing a clear correlation between a country's plane crashes and its scores on the Hofstede's dimensions, the company's researchers practically tied themselves in knots, not trying to cause offense. We're not saying there's anything here, they said, but we think there's something there. That's how Boeing's chief engineer for airplane safety put it. Why are we so squeamish? Why is the fact that each of us comes from a culture which is with its own distinctive mix of strengths and weaknesses, tendencies and predispositions, so difficult to acknowledge? Who we are cannot be separated from where we're from. And when we ignore that fact, planes crash. Section 14. Back to the cockpit. Captain, the weather radar has helped us a lot. No pilot would say that now. This was in 1997, before Korean Air took its power distance issues seriously. The captain was tired, and the engineer's true meaning sailed over the captain's head. Yes, says the captain in response, they are very useful. He really isn't listening. The plane is flying toward the VOR beacon, and the VOR beacon is on the side of a mountain. The weather hasn't broken, so the pilots can't see anything. The captain puts the landing gear down and extends the flaps. At 1.41.48, the captain says, wiper on, and the flight engineer turns on the wipers. It's raining now. At 1.41.49, the first officer asks, not in sight? He's looking for the runway, and he can't see it. He's had a sinking feeling in his stomach for some time now. One second later, the ground proximity warning system calls out in this toneless electronic voice, 500 feet. The plane is 500 feet off the ground. The ground, in this case, is the side of Nimitz Hill, but the crew is confused because they think that that ground means the runway, and how can that be if they can't see the runway? The flight engineer says, huh? in an astonished tone of voice. You can imagine them all thinking furiously, trying to square their assumption of where the plane is with what their instruments are telling them. At 142.19, the flight officer says, let's make a missed approach. He is finally upgraded from a hint to a crew obligation. He wants to abort the landing. Later, in the crash investigation, it was determined that if he had seized control of the plane in that moment, there would have been enough time to pull up the nose and clear Nimitz Hill. This is what first officers are trained to do when they believe a captain is clearly in the wrong. But it is one thing to learn that in a classroom, and quite another to actually do it in the air, with someone who might wrap you with the back of his hand if you make a mistake. 142.20. Flight engineer says, not in sight. With disaster staring them in the face, both the first officer and the engineer have finally spoken up. They want the captain to go, to go around, to pull up and start the landing over again, but it's too late. 141 or 142.21. First officer, not in sight. Missed approach. 22. Flight engineer. Go around. 23. Captain. Go around. Ground proximity warning. 100. 142.24 in 84 one hundredths of a second. Warning system. 50. 25 and 19 of a second. 40. 30. 20. Sound of impact at 142.25.78. Sound of tone, sound of groans, and sound of tone. And then, the end of recording. Thank you for watching. 
Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.